Good evening. This is Heartstock Radio, and I am your host, Carol Murphy. And Clark Grant is manning the board here in Butte, Montana. We are, I think, officially into summer, but that doesn't mean it's not going to snow again. We all know that, but it just makes days like today even sweeter. And today we have a great guest. She is Marion Jensen of Mine City Reflections. A lot of cool stuff going on, and she's going to tell you all about it here in just a moment. Thanks so much for listening. This is Heartstock. We'll be right back. This is Heartstock Radio, and I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And our guest today is Marian Jensen. In just a moment, she's going to tell you all about what she is up to. And also, I need to tell everybody that you can email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. You can also check us out, if you'd like, on Facebook. We post all of our upcoming programs, and love to hear from you. So... Let's get down to business here. Marion Jensen, hi. Hi, how are you? I'm so glad to be here. I am so glad to have you here too. And for all of those out in radio land that don't know what Mining City Reflections is or are, please tell our listeners just a little bit about what you do and an intro for us, please. I'd love to. Mining City Reflections is a part of the Vertigree Project, which is a partnership with the National Endowment for the Humanities that the KBMF got a grant from three or four years ago. And we partner with Butte Archives and the community radio station to produce a series of podcasts. And the Mining City Reflections is one of three elements. And It's one that focuses specifically on women's history in Butte. Just a little bit of a background. uh, The community radio station manager, Clark Grant, wanted to have women's voices on the radio. And I was one of the main advocates for that. And I think he got me involved in this grant just to finally shut me up. Not really, but... There are many, many male voices on the radio, and I've always wanted to somehow increase the women's voices. So the archives has a wonderful set of oral histories, not all of which are women, but a substantial number of them are women. And so we use those oral histories to create narratives and then add music and create a podcast about a whole 
host of subjects, mainly though immigrant stories of women who came to Butte in the early 20th century. And also we focused on the Women's Protective Union, which is an organization that was in Butte, but is not a lot known about it. And it was really a fascinating organization. And we had oral histories taken in the 1980s from women who are in that organization. And so we created a set of programs about that. And then the third segment is what I like to call the second generation, which is oral histories from women who are still here in Butte, but who we want to get on the record as, you know, being witnesses to the incredible amount of challenges that Butte has faced in the 20th, 21st century. How were those oral histories originally collected and yeah, maybe give us a little history of when they started collecting them and what was the motivation for that. That's connected actually to the foundation of the Butte Archives because the archives finally, I think its initiation was somewhere around the early 80s. And once it was established, then the archives started collecting oral histories. One of the main movers and shakers in the whole archive collection is Professor Mary Murphy, who is in the history department at Montana State. And she actually came here in the 80s as a graduate student and was collecting um, oral histories as part of that. So she left her oral histories with the archives. And then throughout the 80s and into the 90s, there were several different groups that were interested in the oral histories. There was a Montana labor project that collected a lot of the women's protective union oral histories. There was also a project out of Helena, out of the State Historical Society. They did some oral histories about uh, women and community leaders. So there were several organizations. Uh, But you have to understand, you have to know that the town is just filled with wonderful storytellers. And kids here grow up with a real sense of history that I haven't seen in a lot of the other cities where I've lived and visited. And so we have some oral histories that were projects by young people interviewing their grandparents and their parents, which are also valuable. So I'm really curious. This is near and dear to your heart, I know. And maybe <laughs> maybe you can tell us a little bit about why why it is so important to you. Well, when I came to Butte in 1999, coming from back east, I was in the midst of beginning to write a, a mystery series. And I had this mystery series that was set back east somewhere. And then I moved to Butte Uh, Our family came here. My daughter went to school at Montana Tech, where my husband teaches. And I only had to be in Butte about 20 minutes before I realized that the setting here for our mystery series was phenomenal. So, of course, being a newcomer, I was very sensitive to needing to learn a great deal about the city before I could really tell its story. And one of the first places I went 
like many writers in this country and internationally, was to the Butte Archives. And when you see the wealth of information they have there, there are not that many city archives, I think maybe five or six in the whole country. Most archives are state archives. So to have a, a city archive in and of itself was a pretty amazing thing. They collect all kinds of personal records of organizations, of people's families, of churches, and all kinds of clubs. I mean, they really do a wonderful job and they curate all of that information to make it available to people who want to come and look up their families or research about all manner of things. So that was one of the first places I went to begin to research my mystery series, which is the Miami City Mysteries. And all of those novels have a backstory that draws on the history of, of the city. So they were integral to my writing. And then just in general, you know, I'm a history buff. And as you and I were discussing earlier, the importance of knowing our history, both personally and individually and as a city and as a country. And we can see what happens right now as an example of what's happening when we somehow begin to overlook an important part of the past. So in that regard, I think Butte's ahead of a lot of places because, as I mentioned, the city is steeped in history and people here know their history and love it. And why women? You know, there's a lot of twists and turns to the history in Butte. And why did you specifically want to tell the stories of these women? Well, I was really looking, obviously, for, well, initially we were looking for oral history tapes that we could record and use. And as I initially became involved with the community radio station, I was doing this program where I was interviewing women who were living in the city. It was called Women And, and just looking for interesting stories to put women's voices on the radio. Meanwhile, Clark had begun to digitize all these oral histories that were in the archives that were on reel-to-reel tapes, cassettes. I don't know, there might even have been some Super 8. I mean, he was trying to really save the collection, which he had he has done and I know um, the archives is deeply grateful for the fact that he's rescued all this material that they had and as he would come across these oral histories that he was really taken with he would say to me oh you ought to listen to this one oh you ought to listen to this one so that's how it started I began to listen to these stories and the beauty of oral history is that you're hearing the voice of someone who's talking about something they have witnessed or experienced. And in my view, there's a power to that that goes way beyond what you are reading in a history book. And and so I wanted to harness the power of those kind of oral histories. And it soon became clear we had all these women who were talking about growing up in Butte. And because we have such a wide variety of immigrant cultures here, 
depending on you who you ask, there are 23, 25, 30 different groups of immigrants who came to work in the mines. And so hearing those stories were, I mean, it just creates a picture of what life in Butte was like in the early 1910s and 20s. When the mines were, you know, working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so those stories were poignant, and I just felt like we we need to get these out into the world. Did your previous professional life help with this project? What did you do before you came to Butte? Well, I was a college and university administrator, so certainly I was familiar with the use of oral history as a research tool and also had my writing background. And they certainly inform all of this because I had come from early on from Morgantown, West Virginia, which was a deep shaft coal mining culture. And it was apparent to me how much similarities there were between that city of mining and this one. Mountains are a lot bigger out here, but there were also a strong immigrant culture because mining was a dangerous occupation and one that didn't require a lot beyond a strong back. I mean, you know, I'm generalizing, but um, immigrants were drawn to that kind of labor. And I'd seen that in West Virginia and in Kentucky where I was born. So I had a strong affinity for these kind of stories. It just seemed to be a natural fit. We're at that halfway point. We're going to take a quick music break. In just a moment, we will be back with Marian Jensen. This is Heartstock. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and our guest today is Marian Jensen. And she is talking all about Mining City Reflections. And hi again, Marian. Hi. <laughs> so, this is part of a larger project, the Vertigree Project. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about maybe the over? reaching mission of the Vertigree project and how Mining City Reflections fits into that. Sure. So the Vertigree project really is kind of a rural communication grant that grew out of that kind of a grant. And so what we're trying to do is cover those aspects of the Butte culture, which is a mining culture, even though most of of the deep shaft mining is long gone. We still do have one mine here, a pit mine, and the associated ecological disaster all around that. And so the other two parts of the Verde Gray project are a group of short form podcasts 
that are being done by our wonderful local historian, Richard Gibson, and they draw on his research about the most memorable places in Butte, characters and events, and those are short forms. So they're only a couple of minutes long, and there are quite a few more of them. And then Clark Grant, our, our radio manager, is doing a series of in-depth, hour-long episodes about underground mining. And he draws from a lot of archival recordings and also new oral histories where we hear from actual miners about how the mining has been done and the changes and some fascinating things that, you, again, you never read in a book. And I've only heard snippets of those. But so those two, along with the one that the Mining City Reflections, which, as I said earlier, focus more on women and what they were doing during that period. I mean, mining obviously is a very masculine occupation. And during the period of active mining in, in Butte, there certainly were no women in the mines, but women were here and many of the miners were single. So there were restaurants and boarding houses and it was common because we had so many widows, because again, the danger in mining, we had a lot of widows who would take boarders into their homes. And so that was a 24 seven operation because the mines had three shifts. And as soon as you got one group out the door with breakfast and a lunch pail, the next bunch was coming home and wanting dinner and needing all the domestic tasks being done for them. And they had no wives. They were, again, mostly boarders. We had some huge boarding houses up on the hill. And we were able to, to use some of the oral histories of women who worked in those boarding houses where they would serve 200 meals a, a ship mm. and would wash the clothes and make the lunch buckets that were so famous for the miners. Mm-hmm. And there were restaurants, the same kind of thing. Oftentimes a single miner would come to town, not yet having secured a job at the mine and look for a restaurant who would quote unquote stake them until they got their first paycheck. And that restaurant would give out a chit, if you will. So that miner could come and eat three meals a day at that restaurant for a couple of weeks. And then when he got paid, he came and almost literally gave his paycheck to the people who ran the restaurant. So it was a unique setting. And the stories the women tell, of course, are, are of hard work and, no, at that point, up until the founding of the Women's Protective Union, there was no day off. There was no vacation or sick leave. You worked and worked and worked till the work was done. Mm-hmm. And on Facebook, we did post one of the programs in particular that I was hoping that you could kind of talk a little bit about. Um, oh, sure. Mm-hmm. While there were 20, 23 different immigrant groups here in Butte, there were also African-Americans here. Most of the African-American families who came here followed the railroad porters because railroad porters were an occupation that African-American back east were able to, to get. They'd ride the trains out west and then oftentimes 
Um, they'd end up uh, staying in a, a town out west where the environment for African-Americans was more hospitable. I mean, there was certainly discrimination here in Butte to a certain extent because there were so few blacks. We had about 2,000 African-Americans here through the late 30s. And the particular oral history we've posted is of a woman named Perdita Duncan. And Perdita Duncan was born here in Butte, but her father was actually a podiatrist. And he had come here from back east and established a, a practice. He was one of only a couple of podiatrists in all of Montana. But her story is a, a poignant one and told so beautifully in her own words. I mean, she had a velvet voice. She was played the piano and she was very musical. And in the end, she did leave Butte to go away to college. She went to Oberlin College where she studied music. But even then, there was really no career path for an African-American woman. So she went on to New York City where she worked in the, um, after she got a college degree in social work, she worked in the New York City Social Services Department. But she loved music so much that she managed to get tickets to the Metropolitan Opera and to the symphony. And, and she got those tickets from the Amsterdam News, which was the largest African-American newspaper in the United States. And she went and to those performances and she reviewed them. So she became a music critic in New York City, which is a long way to go from Butte, Montana. <laughs> what are your favorite points that she makes about her life as an African-American woman and what it was like back then? Well, she, again, um, she's so insightful and she talks about how you know, she didn't really feel discriminated because, you know, sitting in third grade, she was the only black student. So she didn't feel like she was necessarily treated any differently than anybody else. And she had white friends and she she was very active. Her mother was very active in one of the African-American churches here because there were churches here that didn't allow black families. But her family found a place and and she felt like she was accepted there. It wasn't until the junior high years that the issue of relationships between blacks and white that she felt excluded. And, and there's a very poignant story about how she and a friend were walking past the Knights of Columbus where a dance marathon was taking place and how much she wanted to go into dance but really none of the boys were allowed to dance with her. Yeah. And didn't her father tell her that she needed to learn how to be alone? True. Her, her, her <laughs> father had a, a very um, pragmatic view. And Perdita also mentions a school principal who was instrumental in, in getting her to sort of forge ahead because Perdita did say oftentimes she felt like the teachers would not call on her because she was very bright and for whatever reason she, they didn't single her out and for one reason or another. And so when she complained to the principal about it, he would just say, you know what you know, Perdita, 
don't let other people stand in your way. And she took that to heart. I mean, she got into Oberlin College, which was one of the first colleges in the United States to admit African-American women and excelled there. And I mean, she was thwarted at a number of different points in, in her early career and she just kept going. And she would say that that's what you learned from being in Butte. You learn to be who you are and not be ashamed or uh, not hide that under a bushel. And she actually came back to Butte uh, at the end of her career and took care of her ailing mother and wrote a few music reviews for the Montana Standard. So by the time she got back, I think she'd seen some changes. Anyway. I wish I could meet her today. <laughs> yes. Yes, I yeah. feel that way about a number of these mm-hmm. uh, women. They exude such heart, such dedication to whatever they were doing. Many of them had menial jobs, and to them, there was no job too small, and they worked till the work was done, backbreaking though it was. Some of them hardly spoke English, but they found a way to make a living here, and they appreciated beauty. Mm-hmm. We've got about two minutes left here. I was hoping you could maybe give us a little preview of what lays ahead. We have done a whole series about the Women's Protective Union, which is fascinating because it was one of only a handful of all women unions in the country, and they were very powerful here in Butte. We also are now doing a group of oral histories of second generation, third generation Butte women. And you can hear from their stories how much they have learned from their heritage, which Mm -hmm. they all know very well. So how might our listeners find you or find Vertigree Project? The Vertigree Project has a website. It's vertigreeproject.org. And it eventually will have links to all of the uh, podcasts that I'll be doing. And that's probably the best place. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Marion Jensen. Oh, it was a total pleasure. This is Heartstock, and as usual, we will see you next week. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our live programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. That time will take you and me.